Welcome to Meadowbrook Church, leading people into the Christ-centered life. For more information about who we are, find us online at www.meadowbrook.ca. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who know and love Him, but God has revealed it to us by His Spirit. Holy Spirit, you take what is known of God and you make it known to us. You reveal God to us. You open God's word to us. You show us who Jesus is. You let us encounter God's presence. You refresh us. You renew us. You transform us. And so, yes, we invite you here, Spirit of God. We invite you here to make God known to us, to reveal God more to us. There is so much we don't know. There's so much we want to know. So Holy Spirit, show us more and more and more and more and more who Jesus is and help us to walk in the ways that he would have us walk and help us to live for you, Lord, in every way. Thank you for your presence. Rest here with us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, worship team. You can take your seats. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 20 today. Book of Revelation chapter 20. It's the last book in the Bible. You can meet me there in your Bibles or on your phone or on your tablet. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's a Bible on the pew in front of you, and it's page 1252 in that Bible. We started a series last week that's going to carry us through the fall that we've called Living for Eternity, that the Bible is clear that we are not ending in this world, in this life, that we are created as eternal beings, as God is eternal, and we will have an eternal home somewhere or another. And so we are looking at the fact that we as immortal souls are living for eternity, but not just the fact that we will literally live for eternity, but that we need to start living now with an eternal mindset. Because the early church was fueled by this urgency, by this understanding that Jesus is coming back and we don't know exactly when. And even beyond that, the early church was fueled by this urgency that the Romans might kick in the door and cut off your head at any moment, or any number of deadly diseases might take you down. At any moment, you might face eternity. And that's not our life typically here in comfortable 21st century Canada. We don't have that same sense of urgency that we might be face to face with eternity at any moment. And so we looked at 2 Peter 3 last week, and we talked about in light of eternity, in light of the fact that Jesus is coming back, in light of the fact that even if he doesn't come back this minute, we might be face-to-face with him in another way, in light of the fact that we will stand before him and give an account, in light of the fact that that account will have a determination as to where we will spend our eternity, in light of the fact that eternity could face us, face us at any moment, what kind of people ought we be? What's that going to mean for us? As we live with an eternal mindset, as we live for eternity here now, as we prepare for that as followers of Jesus. Today we're going to do just a light, fluffy, no-nonsense message on heaven and hell. And we're just going to dive right into the the big stuff and uh, take a bit of time to unpack what does the Bible say about heaven and what does the Bible say about hell. Just to get us going, before we jump into our text, uh, sometimes it's good to have people who are way smarter than you talk about these kinds of things. So here are some people talking about heaven. Heaven looks like a beautiful place. Rainbow color with glitter. Like colors you've never seen before. Purple and pink and red and white. Pink and purple. Maybe I'm 
thinking that heaven might look like a cloud. Cloud. Golden is yellow clouds. It doesn't. It doesn't have glass. <laughs> because it can be made of marshmallows. <laughs> That's funny. It's a house where you die in a big giant house. Yeah, he's gonna make a big room for you and me. Bigger than like the whole world. And he's gonna make a giant school for you. Like, like the more people that move into heaven, the the bigger God makes it. And so the kids have more room to play. That's gonna be awesome. My grandma and grandpa will be in heaven. My dad, he's getting super old. I think my dad's gonna be the first one that's gonna die. <gasps> Mary, I think that's the only girl. I think I'm not gonna die. I think I'm just gonna be all by myself. These animals. I got to play with Jesus. Dogs. Woof, woof. Elephant. There's gonna be a baseball team in heaven. White Sox, I think, will be in heaven. We could let, like, the people who play the Cubs go to heaven. All Sox-siders go to heaven. Jesus. And I was planning on giving him a high five or something. I'll miss when he does down low some slow parts, because he's fast. There's going to be, like, stuff in heaven the stuff that's in the world. Even in Texas, even in California. I don't have a zip line. So then I can like get like a paper towel and then jump on it and then it would hold on and then I can like swing down it. I will respectfully stuff in heaven. A pretty dress. TVs. I think there's gonna be every food on earth in heaven. Bread and not cereal. Bread and juice and fruit, like watermelon, maybe some strawberries, french fries. There's not McDonald's in heaven. We won't even think about getting hungry. You don't have to go to the grocery store at all. Just heaven has it all. We'll never get cold or sick or hungry or anything. We'll just be happy. We're not going to fall down in heaven. I already got it, Allie. I walked all over my foot. It'll be okay. In heaven! And I really miss God. That's the last thing I can tell you about heaven. So I don't have much to add to that at all, but it's... Uh... It's a tricky needle to thread the glory of heaven that we're excited about and the reality of hell that scripture warns us about. And so we're going to try to thread that needle. I'm not sure how well we did in the first service, but we're going to give another go. Let's look at our text here. We're in Revelation chapter 20. 
And Revelation is a book where the Apostle John has a picture of what the end of time is going to look like. What is eternity going to look like? What's the final judgment going to look like? And so he has this vision, and he wrote it down. And so this is what he wrote. Revelation chapter 20, starting in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And we'll stop there, and you can read more on Revelation if you want. So this is one picture that Scripture gives us of heaven and hell. It's not the only picture. There are a few different ones that we'll look at in a second. But here it is pictured as a city. As you read through Revelation, uh, the city is golden and jewel-encrusted and beautiful and, and ornate and, uh, and decadent. And so what I want to do is just take a few minutes to talk about uh, what the Scriptures say about heaven, a few minutes to talk about what the Scriptures say about hell. We can't possibly cover it in any super depth in one message, but uh, it will give you a picture anyway of what we're talking about. When it comes to heaven, there's lots of stuff that we add on culturally, uh, and so I want to take a look at the pictures that Scripture gives, and that's not to say that things that are added on are wrong necessarily, but it just may not be in the Scriptures. So what does the Scripture say about heaven? Is there literally a stairway to heaven? Did Led Zeppelin get it right? Were they prophets all along? Are there harps? There's always clouds when we talk about it. There's always fat little angel babies floating around. Um, what does the Bible say, and what are the pictures that Scripture gives us about heaven? few things that we'll go through uh, as we talk about this. So first of all, uh, and maybe easiest, heaven is the dwelling place of God. Uh, and that's the beauty of that passage we just read, that God lives there and that we will be with him there. And that is where his throne is. Heaven is where he rules from. Uh, heaven, we get this place in this picture in Scripture, is the place where uh, God's rule is fulfilled perfectly all the time. There's no evil to oppose him there. Uh, that is the place where God is. Heaven is also described as a place of worship, that there are angels around the throne that are worshiping, and Scripture says they can't stop worshiping when they're there. His glory is so great, his majesty is so great, that any time a human being catches a glimpse in it, their reaction is to fall flat on their face, because it's just so intense. His glory is so amazing. So there is worship going on around the throne 24-7, Scripture says. 
It's sometimes described as a fruitful garden. At the very beginning, that's the picture we have. In the very beginning of Genesis, is that it's this garden of abundance and beauty where every need is met, where there's nothing to fear, uh, and where God is there uh, in the midst, in that fruitful garden. It's described as a place of feasting. So shout out to all the foodies out there. There's going to be good food in heaven, I imagine. It's described as a mansion by Jesus, as just a one big huge palace with many, many different rooms. It's also described in Scripture as a place of perfect weather. That was new for me. I didn't know that. Uh, But I found that this week. It's very clear that the sun will not be too hot in heaven. So 80 degrees, no humidity is what it's going to be like. I think I can say with some authority. (laughs) Scripture also describes it as the place where we reign with God, where we rule with him. And that's not something we talk about necessarily a lot. But when God created Adam and Eve, that was the plan. When we ask, why are we here? We're here to worship God, but we were also here to rule over creation with him. And that's the mandate that Adam and Eve were given uh, before sin came in and messed everything up. And so we will be invited back to that place. I don't know exactly what that looks like or how that is worked out, uh, but scripture is pretty clear that we will be part of stewarding creation and ruling over creation with God. It's described, as we just read, as a city in certain places, a city of wealth and a city of beauty. It's described as a place where there is no suffering and when there is no pain, right? Death will be done and heartache will be done and sickness will be done and God will wipe away every tear. Uh, All of that will pass away in this incredible place. It's described as a place of total safety, where we don't need to worry about harm. We don't need to worry about uh, enemies. We don't need to worry about bloodshed, but we will be in perfect security because God is there. It's described as a place of peace and a place of prosperity. The lion will lie down with the lamb. There won't be bloodshed anymore. Swords and weapons will be moved into devices that you use for farming, Scripture says, that, that warfare will be unnecessary. It won't happen anymore, and so we won't need weapons anymore. Uh, there will be peace there. There will be prosperity there. We will always have enough. There will always be enough for us. We don't need to worry about tomorrow anymore. And most importantly, it is the place where we will finally be face-to-face with God, where we will finally get to see him. We will finally be fully in his presence. We get glimpses of that now here on earth. We get glimpses of who he is. We get glimpses of joy and love and peace. We get glimpses of his presence when we come together and worship on a Sunday. Like we, we get a taste of it here on earth, but that is the place where it will be fully realized. That is the place where all of it will come together. The other thing, the, there's more, lots more I could say, but that just gives uh, sort of an overview of some of the pictures of heaven. And you'll notice, I mean, they might not all necessarily fit together, right? Well, is heaven a garden or is it a mansion or is it a city or, or what is it exactly? That's a lot less important than seeing the big picture that these all put together. That it is a place where we will be safe. It is a place where we will have enough. It is a place where we will be face-to-face with God. And whether it's literally a city or literally a garden or literally a palace, whatever, that I don't know. But that's not the most important part of this snapshot. The most important part is that we will be free from all the sin and hurt and brokenness of this world. And we will be in God's presence forever. That's the best part. Jesus also made this pretty clear about heaven. He said, heaven is the kingdom that was prepared for you since the creation of the world. And we often talk about God doing things for his own glory, and of course he does, first and foremost. But Jesus, when he was talking about heaven, saying this was the place that God made for you. 
everything we just listed, all of that beauty that we just listed, all of the incredible promises we just listed, God made that for us. That's what he wants for us. That's where he wants us to be. He made that for us. And when you look at how incredible that place is, again, whatever literally it looks like, the beautiful place that Scripture lays out, and this understanding that God made that for us, prepared that for us, built that for us to be with him forever, and that's what he wants for us, that's a good reason to worship him forever. That's a good reason to always be thankful. And if this was the Pentecostal church, someone would have yelled amen in that moment. God made that for us. That's what he wants for us. And when we talk about heaven and hell, that sometimes becomes the question when people ask questions about hell. Well, how could God create hell? And how could God punish us in hell? Why would God create that uh, if he's such a good and loving God? But if you're going to be fair, you have to ask the same thing about hell. Why would God create heaven? God created heaven for us because he loved us. And as we move into talking about hell, just remember that scripture, that this is where God wants us. This was what he intended for us. I remember years ago being in school and a conversation about hell uh, struck up. And there's a lot, again, just like with heaven, there's maybe cultural things we've added to hell. And we'll look at the scriptures in just a moment. But talking with some friends, and I wasn't a Christian at that point, and none of them were Christians. And as we talked about hell, uh, they were sort of joking. And you maybe have heard joking along these lines before of, uh, well, hell sounds like it'd be more fun. Right? If heaven's just where all the uptight Christians are and hell's where all the partiers are, then I want to be with my friends in hell. That sounds like a better place. And that's a pretty common comment that you might hear. And, and yet, there's a lot more to that when you look at what Scripture actually says about it. So what does the Scripture actually say about hell? When Jesus used the word hell that gets translated as hell, Jesus, as he's recorded in the New Testament, is written in Greek. Uh, Jesus used the Greek word Gehenna. And that was a literal place on earth when Jesus was alive. Uh, it means in the valley of Hinnon. And Hinnon was a valley on the south side of the city of Jerusalem. So this was a real-life place. This wasn't a spiritual uh, reality at the time. This was a real place. And so when Jesus uses the word hell in the Gospels, uh, he's using the word that means in the valley of, of Hinnon. And that valley had a really checkered history in, in Israel's history. It had been uh, a graveyard at different times in its history, and so, so there were dead bodies buried deep, and, uh, and Jewish people don't, wouldn't go to graveyards. They wouldn't go visit. They would stay away from that place. And then Israel had gone into exile and come back, and before that had happened, there had been evil kings who led Israel, and in that valley, they had uh, murdered innocent people. They had even slaughtered babies. Uh, in worship of false idols and false gods. And so uh, the most wicked kings of Israel had done just atrocious things in the valley of Hinnon. And so Israel went to exile, and then they came back to the land. And when they came back, they looked at that valley, and they said, well, there's, there's dead bodies down there, so we can't do much with that land. There's been innocent blood spilled there. We can't really farm there. And, and there, were, there was false worship that happened in that area. So we don't want to build anything on it. So we can't use that land for anything uh, really productive. And so what they decided to do was they turned it into the garbage dump for Jerusalem. And one of the features of the garbage dump was that there was a fire going all the time to consume the, the garbage. And so there was always a fire going, there was always smoke rising, there was always a stink coming up from it. And so this was a literal place when Jesus walked the earth. 
And when you were in Jerusalem, you never had to wonder what direction you were facing because the south end of the city, you could see the fire and the smoke rising up at the garbage dump. And when Jesus uses the word hell, when he's talking about in the afterlife, some are going to go to heaven and some are going to go to hell, that's the word picture that he chose. He says, some will be going to the valley. Some will be going to the garbage dump where the fire never stops burning and, and where you're cast outside the city, where you're cut off from everybody. To be discarded and not come back is to go to the valley of Hinnon. And so Jesus uses that as the metaphor for this place in the afterlife that we call hell. Just to give you a, a profound word picture that Jesus used to describe what this would be like. To go to hell is to be cast out, is to be in the fire, is to be tormented, is to be uh, left behind and forgotten. It's, it's not a good picture when Jesus spoke it. Some of the other pictures that scripture gives us about hell uh, Gehenna, the, the burning garbage dump that Jesus used as a metaphor. It's called the lake of fire in the text that we just read. Burning sulfur, fire, and brimstone, depending on the version of the Bible that you have. Uh, it's called an abyss, just a, a dark, bottomless pit uh, with no end to it. Uh, it is referred to as eternal punishment. It's referred to as a blazing furnace. It's referred to as being in chains in the darkness, not a fire metaphor, but a prison metaphor. It's referred to as never-ending fire. The fire never goes out, Scripture says. It's referred to as the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, the place of, of despair and the place of pain, the place of torment. It's described as being put in the outer darkness. Uh, and the picture is by yourself for all those who would joke about, I get to party with my friends in hell. Uh, no, on your own, in the blackness, by yourself, with nobody. It's described as a place of no rest. In this life, there is evil and there is hurt and there is heartache, but we can rest from it, right? We can sleep and get a break and we can distract ourselves and we can find ways to not experience it, uh, but there's no break from it, Scripture says, uh, when this happens in eternity. And the worst part is to be cut off from God's presence forever. Because this world we live in now is not perfect. It is evil. It is broken. The news is hard to watch. We've experienced heartache in our lives. We've experienced trials and loss. But God is still present here on this earth. Even for those who don't know him, God is still present here on this earth. And so even though we see evil and we experience heartache, we also get to experience joy and we get to experience love and we get to experience peace and we get to experience the goodness of God because God is still present here on earth. It's messed up because there is evil present as well. But when we talk about hell, we talk about even this kind of split that we have on the earth right now of good and evil, all the goodness is gone as we're cut off from God's presence forever. So the rest that we get sometimes and the goodness that we get to experience, even in this broken, sinful, evil world, that gets removed, and it's just the bad part that's left over to be cut off from God's presence forever. And this understanding of, of heaven and hell, this understanding of eternity in one of these places, as we talked about last week, this fueled urgency in the early church that any one of us could be face-to-face -face with one of these places at any moment. And so we don't necessarily have time to mess around. We don't necessarily have time to tolerate whatever's going on in our lives. We don't necessarily have time to stall on making a decision about Jesus. We just might not have that time. We just might not have it. 
And so the understandings of the glory and the beauty and the incredibleness of heaven that just stirs us to worship and be grateful also needs to be held up against the reality of this terrible place that scripture calls hell. And again, whether it's literally a lake of fire, I don't know. Some of these metaphors, like, is it a lake of fire? Is it a bottomless pit? Is it, is it a prison? Is it darkness? Again, that's less important than just you get the picture overall, right? This is a horrible place. And just like we said earlier, uh, that heaven was the place that God created for us. And that's where we're supposed to be. That's where he wants us all. And that's where he has called us to. Heaven was prepared for us. Hell was never prepared for us. Jesus said hell, the fire, was prepared for the devil and his angels. We were never supposed to go there. Heaven was always where we were supposed to be. And hell was created for the devil and his angels because the devil rebelled against God and the devil deceived mankind and the devil introduced all manner of evil and bloodshed and perversion into the world. There is nothing in scripture that suggests that Satan gets a second chance. Uh, His doom has been decided because he has unleashed all of this and he has deceived mankind. Uh, He's done. But that's not where we were supposed to go. Heaven was always where we were supposed to be. And so the question comes up of, you know, if God is so good, then why will people go there? Why are we warned against that? Why doesn't God just bring us all to heaven? And uh, when we talk about it in this context, it always comes down to the fact that because God loves us, he has given us the ability to choose our own way in life. He has not forced himself on anybody. He has not made us robots to just follow him. He has given us the ability to choose. It's as if my dad bought me a car and I got on the wrong road that was heading off the edge of a cliff. And my dad didn't intend for me to go off that cliff, but that cliff exists. And because of my choices, I have gone on the wrong road and I'm heading away from God. I'm heading off the cliff in my car. Because all of us, scripture says, in one way or another have said to God, thanks, I'm going my own way. I don't need to go your way. I'm going my own way. And as we go down that road and as we are heading for that cliff, God has put big signs up along the road saying, turn around, bad road, turn around, come back the right way. And we've ignored those signs and we've kept going. And he has sent messengers. He's had people at the side of the road saying, turn back, turn back, trying to get our attention. And we've kept on the road heading off the cliff. And God in Jesus has even jumped into the car with us. He has jumped into the driver's seat and opened the door to shove us out, saying, I'll go off the cliff instead of you. You get to safety. And we only miss that if we stay in the car going on the wrong direction. Right? God has literally done everything he can to keep us from going off that cliff. He has done everything possible But we make our choices and we go our way. He has done everything possible. And he calls us, and the scriptural word for this is to repent. And there's a lot kind of packed into that word, but just using the car metaphor, all repent means is turn the car around, right? You're heading in that direction. Turn it around. Head back in the right direction. You're heading off a cliff. Get back on God's road. Get back on the right way. Start moving back towards him. And we understand that even though in my life I have turned the car around and I am heading the right way, I'm still going to have sin in my life. I still might slip off the road here and there, but I'm heading in the right direction. I'm heading towards him as he has done everything possible to save me. If God has created hell to punish us, uh, that is a pretty cruel God. 
But if God has created hell to punish the devil and his angels, but has given us the choice, and in our selfishness we've chosen to go down that road, and he has done everything possible, including laying down his own life to turn us around, that's not a cruel God at all. That's an incredibly gracious, incredibly patient God who's worthy of our worship and worthy of our praise. And so the call is turn that car around. Come on back. And for those of us who maybe have already turned that car around, maybe we've wandered off still onto other roads and and we need to still be called back to the right track. Sometimes when we walk with Jesus for a while, we can start to get a little flip about the sin in our lives. And so to be on the right track is to say, you know what, I'm not going to be okay with the sin in my life. I'm not going to be okay with the wandering. I'm going to stumble and fall, but I'm heading in the right direction. I'm purposefully seeking to walk in the way of Jesus. As we talk about heaven and hell, how do we know? Right? How do we know where we're going? How can we be assured of that? There's a verse in Romans. It's not the fullness of the richness of everything that the gospel is, but it's a really good picture of the simplicity of the gospel. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Your car will be turned around. And we made a lot in church over the years over the confess with your mouth part. Uh, and, and there was an emphasis for a lot of years, especially growing up in evangelical churches for me, where it was, uh, you need to say the sinner's prayer, right? That was what we heard. You have to pray a certain thing. Uh, and that's amazing. That's an incredible first step. It, has, it starts there for sure. But it's not really the confession of your mouth part, right? Like say the words, Jesus is Lord. That's good. The point is really make Jesus Lord. Submit to Jesus as Lord. Obey him as Lord. Follow him as Lord. I can say the right words and live selfishly still heading for that cliff. Those words only matter if I mean it, if Jesus is actually Lord. And with that, there is an expectation that if I am making Jesus Lord of my life, that my life is going to look differently then. That if he's actually in charge, then I'm going to live my life his way. And that's going to be part of what drives my life and and the most important part of what drives my life. There's a great story in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 23. Jesus is on the cross being crucified. And scripture says there's two criminals being crucified beside him. And people are mocking Jesus. So you're the Messiah. You said you were the Messiah. Save yourselves if you're such a great savior. And it says one of the criminals likewise was cursing Jesus in that moment. The other criminal who was dying beside him came to his defense And he rebukes his friend getting crucified. He says, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. And it's maybe the best and simplest and most beautiful picture of the gospel in all of scripture. Because there aren't 14 theological things he checks off before he's allowed in. There's not any hoops he has to jump through based on, did you do enough good deeds or bad deeds in your life? It's just so beautifully simple. He acknowledges his sin. He acknowledges, I went down the wrong road. He acknowledges that Jesus somehow can save him. And he trusts and says, Jesus, when you, as Lord, come into your kingdom, just remember me there. I'm putting my hope in you. And Jesus' response is, hey, today... Today, we're going to be worshiping and celebrating in heaven together. We're going to be there today. 
So there wasn't a million things he had to do. Sometimes we overcomplicate it, and it's not always easy to follow Jesus. It's not always easy to do the right thing. It's not always easy to turn the life around. It's not always easy to get back on track. But the gospel itself is so beautifully simple. We acknowledge our sin. We acknowledge Jesus can save us. We put our trust in him. And with that, as we acknowledge Jesus is Lord, 1 John 2, 6 says, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. If that criminal wasn't dying, if he still had years left, we would expect that his life was going to be different after that encounter with Jesus. Because when Jesus is actually Lord, that's going to change my priorities in life. It's going to change the way I live my life. Again, not that I will ever do it perfectly in this world, but it means that he is in charge and I'm seeking to live his way. That's why in the book of James it says, faith without good deeds is dead. That's not real faith. Because if you actually have faith that Jesus is Lord, that's going to have an effect on how you live your life. And as we seek to live after Jesus, that is what we are driving for in our life. That as we prepare for eternity, and as we believe that he is Lord, and as we put our trust in him to save us, we also say, I'm going to live a life worthy of the calling on my life. I'm going to live a life that glorifies you. I'm going to live a life that pleases you. I'm going to live a life that points other people towards you as I live out this life here on earth preparing for eternity. I know we have barely scratched the surface of, of all these things today. Uh, thankfully, we have an email address that solves all those problems. Uh, if you have a question, if you want to keep talking about this, you can, of course, talk to us afterwards. But we have uh, an email address, questions at meadowbrook.ca. And we are uh, always checking it. And we would love to keep answering your questions. And we would love to keep this conversation going. So if you have any questions along today's sermons line, we would love to keep talking with you about it. There was a man named John Newton, and uh, he was a slave trader. He was British, and he would take boats down to Africa. He would kidnap Africans, and he would bring them all over the British Empire. And while he was on one of those trips, he became deathly ill, and he found himself face-to-face with eternity. And he cried out to Jesus for mercy, and he cried out to Jesus for forgiveness, and he found it, and he felt peace with God. He recovered from his fever uh, and then he would dedicate the rest of his life to eliminating the slave trade. He just he fought against it, uh, just the call of justice on his life to undo some of the damage that he had done. He served Jesus forever, uh, forever, yes, forever, for the rest of his life. And, um, and he wrote a lot of songs. And one of the songs you all know, it starts with the words, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. And he wrote that out of his own experience with God's forgiveness. And he wrote extensively, and he was a wonderful teacher and a songwriter, and this is one of my favorite things he ever wrote as he came to the end of his life. He said, although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. And that's where all of his hope and all of his trust was. And that's reason to worship right there, if you have made that confession. And if you haven't, uh, today can be your day, right? The, the thief on the cross, today can be the day where we say, Jesus, I have sinned. Jesus, I'm sorry. Jesus, I want to follow you and put my trust in you. And before we close, Pastor Mesh is going to close in just a minute. I want us to stand together uh, just as we finish in worship. Would you stand with me as we worship the one who has done everything possible to pull us off the path we were on, to bring us to heaven where he created for us to be with him forever. You know, it's often, hell is a four-letter word in the church sometimes. And it's good to talk about today. And to hear about the glory that's in heaven. But to also hear the dark side of hell. It's a reality. 
And that's the journey we're all on together. And Pastor Chris talked about confessing with your mouth and believing in your heart that Jesus is Lord and you'll be saved. And if you've made that prayer in your life, you made that decision that Jesus is Lord in your life, and you're walking with him, even though we stumble towards heaven every day, you're not perfect. Hallelujah. Celebrate that. Be excited about that. I think sometimes we forget to celebrate what Jesus has done for us. And we should celebrate that with joy and peace and hope so others can see that, yes, life is hard, but there's a joy and a peace in us that we find in Christ. And others will ask you questions. Why? How? Because of Jesus. And if you're trying to figure out where Jesus lives in your life, is he a part of who you are? And you're trying to understand, I simply want to say this to you, that Jesus loves you wholeheartedly. And he wants to be a part of your life. And you're still trying to figure that out. I want you to talk to us today before you leave. Because as Pastor Chris mentioned, the gospel is very simple, but it's the most profound decision you will ever make. So as you think about that, and we think about the Eternity series, and last week we talked about looking at eternity through the eyes of that, through heaven, and through the eyes of eternity as Jesus saw it. I challenge you also, and this is for me as well, think of your family and friends in the same light that are far from God. I think of my family often that way, and I wonder, and I, I concern myself, and I, Jesus is Lord, where are they going to be at the end of the day? What happens when Christ comes back? And you have family and friends in your life that are in the same boat. So as you leave here today, I said this in the first service as well, mark down a name somewhere where you can see in your Bible, on your calendar, on your fridge, somebody that you can soak in in prayer starting today and see what God does. One person. Yes, we have a lot of people we can pray for, but let's start focusing and get clarity there and see what the Holy Spirit does. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for paying it all for us. And we celebrate that today. And we're grateful that we are whiter than snow. And God, for those today that are trying to figure out where you fit into their lives, I pray you reveal to them through your Holy Spirit that you are real, that you love them, and that you can bring them freedom. Lord, I recognize life is not perfect. Life is hard. But the beautiful thing, Jesus, of following you, for those who call ourselves Christ followers, that in our imperfection, you show up. That we can walk in peace and enjoy and hope, knowing you are with us in the storms of life. So pray, God, that this week we would know your peace, your hope, and joy. Even if we haven't recognized you yet fully in our heart, but you would reveal yourself to those seeking that out. Lord, guide us this week. Give us awesome opportunity to talk to others about you in very practical ways. And again, Lord, for those who have come today and trying to figure out where they are with you, I pray, Jesus, you can courage and strength and wisdom and a soft heart to want to come talk about that and what it means to follow you. Jesus, we're grateful. Again, thank you that the cross is empty, that the grave is no longer, and you look death in the eye, and you said no. So, Father, I pray you're blessed and glorified in our week. Thank you that you love us and you take care of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great week, church.